Hey, hey, everyone, and welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Lorimer, I'm joined by the other half of your host, Mr. Gabriel Krauser. Gabriel. Howdy doody. We're, we're going to speak uh, in American accents this whole episode because everybody we're gonna, yeah, we talk about it. We've got to talk about America. We talk um, like that's from the deep south. We can talk like forest. That's very film. good. That's very good. <laughs> oh, my God. You're listening to Two Crickets on a Thorn Tree. I'm a valley girl. <laughs> and I've just got to say, I saw a picture of Nicholas Larmer in an America vest, and it made me feel so proud to be an right, American. Right. This is this is the 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 what what are we going to call it? Two crickets after dark is is when you get to see that photo. It's a very secretive service to, <laughs> to subscribe to. <laughs> um, so I'm sure we'll talk about that today. But let's 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 start with uh, what happened on the weekend. Well, the DA held its long-awaited conference, and it had uh, a bunch of stuff go down. Most most interestingly, perhaps or most importantly. Um, John Steenhazen confirmed as leader, got about 80% of the votes or so. Helen mm-hmm. Ziller confirmed as federal council chairperson, uh, which is also, I think, pretty good. Um, Balin Tuli was, yeah, yeah. Tuli was pretty gracious. Uh, said she would support Steenhazen. Um, so that's better than I think it could have gone. Uh, and yeah, so there were also some resolutions on the floor. Um, you know, at every party congress, the DA always does this. They always have, you know, the party is opposed to the killing of puppies, and then people vote yes or no. Um, one of those resolutions, Although, was, of course, this time, this yeah. time, the, the the motions were a little bit more contentious than that, and so most of them were voted no. Hey, eh? well, no, it depends. It depends. There were some. Uh, so there was like, uh, do we condemn farm murders? So obviously that was that was overwhelmingly yes we condemned farm murders, but then there were a couple of other ones like um, there was one put up which was the and I think I talked about this on the Daily French show. Uh, South Africa should include in its laws ecocide as a human rights abuse, mm. as a crime against humanity. That was defeated because you know what the hell is ecocide. <laughs> Yeah, it's too hard to define to be. And you, also, yeah. like, does does ruining does does pouring chemicals into a uh, into a river equate to genocide? Because that's sort of the implication being made here. Yeah. You know, if yeah. you if you strip mine if you strip mine some felt, is that the same as committing genocide? I, I, I don't think so. Yeah, I'm against strip mining. I really am, but it's not the same as genocide. No. Uh, um, I so think that, that was defeated. An, int- an interesting one to just quickly discuss is the motion to have an official deputy of head of the party was defeated. And I think one thing that's interesting about that is just to uh, look at New Zealand right now. The sort of basically deputy head of the party stepped down uh, and is not becoming the deputy prime minister. And he's a really in- he's a he's a weird character. He looks white. Uh, but he's sort of on the one drop rule. He's a Maori and has dedicated mm-hmm. his uh, political career in New Zealand to uh, fighting fighting for the Maori people, uh, mostly by defeating the Maori party. Uh, <laughs> he's a member of, of the Labour Party. And I'd, it's not altogether clear why he stepped down, uh, why he refused to become Deputy Prime Minister now that uh, Jacinda Ardern uh, has won a proper party in new zealand for the first time in a very right. in it's, forever, it's basically. a weird time to step down because you think this is exactly the time you yeah. want to be in government it's a strong mandate all that kind of thing so and, and i think part of it what, what happened is that he he had he gave this outrageous speech where he said that all of their political opponents are blue tanawaka i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing that right because uh, my new zealand well, forgive you if you're is a little bit wet <laughs> But he did a he did a speech for twenty five minutes, which rhymed the whole time. And uh, Tanawaha is is a goblin. It's a gremlin. It's like a you look at the pictures. It's like a a devil's dragon. And so he's just calling oh. all of these people goblins, uh, and thinking it's cool. <laughs> it's like Alex he's Jones, like one eighth Mari. It was very accepting rhyming Alex Jones. It was very yes. very strange. 
It's an improvement. And I wonder if they were like, dude, maybe, maybe just like stay away from politics, like get your rap career going. You <laughs> you go in places. Uh, you can be like Flight of the Concords. Uh, New Zealand makes great, uh, sometimes accidentally, sometimes deliberately funny music. Anyway, but the point <laughs> is that uh, just there's, 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 I can't think of a, a, a real party system in the world where you, uh, where you have a deputy leader and a leader both elected from inside. Usually um, you have a leader and then they can appoint a deputy or you, or you have a deputy position vacant. And that's because parties like to have some uh, cohesion and there's always going to be a split right, in the party right. there's always going to be a race between two people going yeah, for the if, leadership if, position and if you've got so, an official deputy then one faction's always going to get their person to be the official deputy and then you're going to most likely continue to have two contrasting messages rather than one person wins with one message and one sort of program of action and then they right. accommodate their rivals as 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 they see fit it's just a very standard practice thing, and, and New Zealand sort of showing yeah, a little bit what and, happens if you try the other way. It, it, it gets silly and funny. There, there is there is not a single uh, political party in the world that is not riven by faction. Uh, there are there are some parties that have it worse than others. Like you know, I mean, in South Africa, we could worse factions than the I mean, sorry, the NC has worse factions than the DA. Yeah, the DA EFF is, is probably the. Yeah. There are actually some pretty bad factions in the EFF, although they are not often reported on. I mean. Malema's been chased out of party conferences with by mobs before. EFF yeah. conferences, that is. Yeah. Um, He's also uh, lost three uh, treasurers. <laughs> yes. Who, 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 who I, so resigned I in protest. I can't remember what the exact number is, but a significant proportion of all DA, uh, oh, sorry, of EFF MPs have left the party or left parliament since they came in. So I think they had like a 50% turnover or something in their... Uh, uh, in their MPs in, in Parliament since... When did they come in? 2000 and... This is before 2019. Uh, 2014, 2014 and 2009 and 2019, they had something like Five. more than 50% turnover of MPs, which is yeah. interesting. Um, so the, the, the point is just that, that party... Politics is faction fighting. They're just one and the same thing. And so that's yeah, why parties have a winners takes all kind of approach to try and get a cohesive message right. to take to the public. To, to because and, a, a and, party and it's just how it works, and it's fine. It's good. Yeah, because a party, unlike a, you know, it's a voluntary organization with a right to exit. So you don't need to represent absolutely everyone. It's a party that represents something specific. People who want to do X. And so the DA has gone for that, and it's amazing. I mean, I just want to reflect for a moment on what the the DA is betting. You know, I, I was I was speaking to 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 friends of mine from overseas, one from South Korea, one's in Paris, uh, a couple in New York. Like it's a very like people people who haven't been following South African politics. How does it sound to them? Wow. Mm. So the opposition party, which has twenty percent of the vote and really needs to grow because your country is so screwed over, hasn't had a peaceful transfer of power, hasn't had a real political contest at the national level uh, since the beginning of all-race democracy. That party, in a country which is sort of 10% white, 8% white, 90%, 80% black, 10% uh, colored, 2% Indian, that party has now confirmed a white leader. Uh, they're like, what's going on? Oh my God, what are, what are they doing? Are they committing Harikiri? And I'm like, you know, that is what South African media thinks because they yeah. follow the story about as closely as you do. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's very true. <laughs> uh, like these people have, have never heard of John Steenhuisen before. And it's fine. And then I'm like, what is actually happening here is that the DA is making a bet. It is making the bet that... That polling like the Institute of Race Relations, that lived experience like I think all decent South Africans, is that we are a majority sort of reasonable country. Um, yeah. Who, where, where most people have just been either terrorized or like they did actually get piped water and RDP houses from the ANC in the Zuma years or they saw jobs growth and economic growth in the Mbeki years. They've had good reasons to vote for the ANC, but the ANC has been underperforming more and more. They're not voting primarily on racial lines. They're, they're voting their interests. And uh, and so the color of the candidate is actually uh, very much of derivative importance. The primary factor is like, is this person uh, going to be the best at uh, uh, using the English language to uh, challenge and lampoon 
the right. ruling party? Is he a Which, tough fighter? Is he a good administrator? Is he going to maintain unity? And can the party deliver uh, actual services at a, at a cheap rate? This is this is an amazing bet. It's an amazingly audacious thing to say. We 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 are calling the bluff. We think the whole world and the whole South African media basically think South Africans wrong. are dumb racists, mm -hmm. and we're calling their bluff. We're saying that's wrong. And if you just give South Africans a chance, um, they're going to vote their interests and not according to. Uh, bloodline loyalty and i think maybe they're wrong i think they're right but i think it's an audacious like that phrase the audacity of hope that's what the da is showing <laughs> in a very real way it's it's bold yeah it's extremely bold and it's and i think there's something beautiful to it and in 10 years time this is going to be a case study for the world to consider yeah um i, I think helen zilla once talked about how henry kissinger was was seriously um his, his worldview i think in some ways was shaken by the con continued persistence of the da and its existence and its ability to eke out this kind of liberal non-racial uh path in in africa in, in africa and in south africa a country that of course has you know this torrid history yeah. um and it, it it will be a bit of a blueprint for non-racialists everywhere if it succeeds yeah uh, you know and, Dude, and if it succeeds, this is going to be this is going to be one of the great stories of the 21st century. If yeah. it fails, it's going to be one of the interesting noble failures. Um, anyway, right. I, I, I think it's a it's just a very interesting thing for South Africa. And Stephen Hazen's made a lot of good noises so far. Um, I think he's been pretty skilled. He's done well in Parliament. Uh, he's got. Yeah, I, I I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty. Um, I wonder if it's too late. If the DA is getting, but we're getting on this kind of real alternative course uh, a bit late in the day, but uh, yeah. that we shall have to see. Yeah, we will. Um, Badly. So let us let us go overseas now. Oh yeah, oh, there's one more thing to consider, which is that Wednesday. So I suppose when you're hearing this, it'll be tomorrow. Um, we are going to have a whole bunch of by-elections across the country, like a hundred. They normally are sprinkled throughout the year, but because of COVID, all of them were postponed until now. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to get an early look of where uh, the DA under Steenhazen might be going. Um, if the DA holds its ground or does well, that's a good sign. Um, <laughs> but if they fail, well, let's just say that there's a lot more work that needs to be done by the DA. Yeah. I think it's an extremely important point, and it's something that I've been moaning about for a while, um, wherever I get the chance. I think that uh, the timing of this conference was extremely unfortunate because there's so little time between the conference and the votes that the DA hasn't had the chance, won't have the chance to to sort of own the message that comes out of this. I think yes. if they'd had the conference a couple of weeks earlier, then so, – so just to take a step back, I think um, – John Steenhuizen's one, the biggest question mark that I have around his leadership so far is his decision not to, I mean, I think it base, I think it's fair to say his decision. Um, I, I'm sure some DA insiders would challenge me, but let's just say the decision for there not to be a debate between him and Mbali and Tuli in the public. Uh, I really like debate. I think that it, it you know, we discussed this on two crickets. Uh, yeah, you, they were de definitely costs to manage. Uh, yeah, you, you've made the point that um, uh, the, one of the best moments in our politics is actually the debate between Mandela and de Klerk in 94. Yeah. And it was tough times, and it showed them out both really well. And I think that um, Stenazen and Ntuli could have could have sort of used this moment, both of them, to put the best version of their arguments forward. Ntuli more for sort of race-based law, affirmative action BE, uh, uh, Stenazen more for non-racialism. That's just one of the factors, but at the Institute of Race Relations, that's the one that interests me most. Um, mm. And they could have had that debate in the open and then sort of had a vote and then had a winner. One of the reasons that I uh, sort of felt like, okay, maybe it's a bit justified not to um, be having this debate is because of how close the timing is between the electoral conference and the and the 100 council elections. You don't really want to be going into council elections with your factions openly fighting each other. Um, yeah. that's really not a good way to win votes. So I thought if, if only this election had been a month earlier and they'd had the debate, then 
they would have had the time now to just hammer home, do their best at hammering home their message. They'll get huge right. appeal from most professional media houses. But <laughs> uh, that would have given a more real flavor of what the South African uh, body politic thinks about this yeah, new day. I think right now, some of those, some of, so few people vote in those elections. Well, a part of them, are, part of those votes are going to be cast uh, thinking about a DA that was still Musi Maimani's DA. Part of those votes <laughs> are going to be cast on a DA yeah. that's still fighting in the way that Ntuli and Stianazen have been contesting the election. So it's just unfortunate that it's so close in time. But it will be interesting to see. M maybe it's not too soon to tell anything at all. Right. Definitely something um, to watch. Yeah. I think I think one of the reasons, of course, that they they didn't hold it as well is that there was a fear. I'm sure that Ntuli would basically attack the party. A lot of her campaign was fought in the media. Um, she talked to a lot of sympathetic journalists. There was a lot of sympathetic columns written about her. There was, you know, she did interviews with that comedian I loathe. What's her name? Coconut Kales. Uh, yeah. No, that was pretty shocking. And it was written about really badly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it wasn't great. Um, so I, I, I think there was probably a fear, um, and, and you know, I think there's a lot of debate to be had of whether this is a justified fear or not. But that a debate would basically just be full of pieces of ammunition used by the DA's enemies to just trash the party for a really long time. And, you know, there would be yeah. you can imagine what the commentary would have been the day after that debate about yeah. uh, regardless of how well either candidate did, it would all be silly reductionist stuff about uh, look at how he was being condescending to a young black woman and blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. He was explaining things like GDP or whatever. No, I, I agree. When uh, It's tough. It's a tough call, and I'm not going to make the case that they should have done it the other way now. I made that case a month ago, and it is what it is. Yeah. Um, I'm just saying I sort of understand it a bit in, in, in light of this electoral uh, thing. And and I, it's just – I do want to say one last thing about this, though, I suppose, since, we, yeah. since we've taken an extra moment, which is that on Friday I was on uh, Morning Live, SABC, um, mm. Uh, and they, were, they sort of hosted debates. They gave us nice 25 minutes, me and another panelist, sort of expert, very sympathetic to Mbali and Tuli. And she, I don't know, I, I, I said, you know, the, the, the thing to understand is that there is this ideological contest that the, D, that the DA's already been through. Maimani wouldn't allow debate on BE. Gwen and Gwenya resigned as head of policy because she wanted to have a debate. Uh, then information was leaked that Maimani was saying shut up when people were trying to have debate. Right. And and then Maimani's approach of like, Maimani actually almost certainly, you can't know for 100% sure, but like with 95% confidence interval, Maimani lost black voters. He got less absolute black voters than Helen Ziller did in 2014, despite right. the fact that there'd been another five years of Zoom, well, another four years of Zuma and a bit of uh, yes. Ramaphosa coming in on the back of mm -hmm. expropriation without compensation hugely disappointing everyone's like well five white voters left and went to vote for the phrase front plus but uh the the, the, symp the sympathetic uh, commentators to my money didn't want to look at the fact that they lost black voters on a more be ticket with, with or at the least stagnated at the yeah. very least at no. the very least. but um, but pretty i mean i can show you the numbers they they've yeah no i i remember looking at you uh, looking at them with you back in uh back in the day and it uh, yeah. <laughs> it was quite funny actually and one of the reasons for that was how low the turnout in general was in 2019 exactly um, which meant that five percent of the black vote in 2019 absolute numbers was really not the same as five percent of the black vote in or even four percent of the black vote in uh in 2014 in or 2016 exactly exactly right so so, so but the point of that is that there is you know that that the ideological things like with Stenhazen there, Rafil Wencheko, Deputy Federal Chairperson, uh, Gwen Nguyenya, Ivan Mayer, who I accidentally called Ivan Pillay because I was thinking about the road unit case <laughs> that morning. It was 7.30 no. a.m. Oh, God. Anyway, I made a mistake. <laughs> it's too early. What, who's even watching television at that time? Yeah, I don't know. Everyone who's, like, taking their kids to school. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> no, like, Sorry. while they're having breakfast. 
Anyway, uh, so the, the the point is that I was like, these are the two options. And then she was like, yeah, but it's too soon. The first the first response from from my co-panelist was like, it's too soon for that. You you can't understand how bad apartheid was. It was so bad, it was like 400 years. It's it's way too soon for dealing with this. Right. Then I was like, okay, let's look at some hard data. Uh, you know, the BE black top 10% is 32% of income. It's almost more than all white income. Uh, 70% of income nationally is earned by non-white people. You know, this is just not a time to pretend that you know, the white top 10% only earns 10% of national income. It's the fourth largest share. The black uh, top 10% earns 25% of income. Uh, the, you, you can't say that the, the economy is run by white people anymore. Uh, that certainly was true, but it's it's just not factually true today. And no one's surprised when they look out the window to see a rich black dude in a sports car driving by. Right. Uh, to, right. To, to be an amazing lawyer or an amazing entrepreneur or to be a terrible tenderpreneur. Or, and there's also lots of white ter- white guilt guys who make a lot of money out of tenderpreneurial uh, oh, rubbish. So it's like okay. there's rainbows on the, all sides. The, the dude who died? What's his name? Gavin Watson. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's rainbows on all sides. Anyway, then we had another back and forth. And then we were talking about like growth and investment attraction and how to actually grow jobs. And then on the final back and forth, she she flipped the script and said, no, uh, but I must just tell you, it's actually very, my line that I kept saying is you can't judge whether a person is in need or not of government assistance mm-hmm. by looking at the color of their skin. You just can't do that anymore. The, right. the world has changed. And, and, and her last segment, she's like, you know, I just want to say to my fellow panelists, it's actually very condescending to try and establish whether someone is rich or poor or in need or not, or what their educational background is by looking at their skin. And it reminded me of a lesson <laughs> that it took me years to learn in Russian. In Russian, there are three words for but, and there's almost no word for I agree. You can, you can, say, <laughs> you can say agreement has occurred. It's a very weird reflexive conjugation. <laughs> That but explains so, a lot. <laughs> it really does, dude. And it's like psychologists talk about it. It's like it's a thing for foreigners to understand in Russian. If I say, let's go to McDonald's, the standard mm-hmm. Russian replies, no, 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 no. But but let's go to McDonald's. <laughs> That's just how Russians speak. So you have to you have to change your mindset to to listen to the content and not to listen to the f- frame so much because otherwise you get distracted and at that level we it is a perfect example that 20 minute clip it's up on youtube is a perfect example of how to win someone over to oppose race-based law because she started by saying no this guy's wrong we need race-based law and she ended by saying no this guy's wrong we can't have race-based law and 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 if you just and if the framing doesn't matter we can be russians we can say no i disagree with you I oppose this BE. And then the other one says, no, I disagree with you. I also oppose BE. That's fine. We don't, it doesn't have to be kumbaya. Right. But it's like, it's irresistible because you just say a few facts, you give a few anecdotes, you think about policy going forward. And there's just, there's no, there's, there's very few people, very few reasonable people who are going to sit on TV and then after all of that say, no, the government must judge who's rich and poor by the color of their skin. They'd rather say no, but we mustn't judge people on the color of their skin. And I think it's fantastic. I claim it as a small win. Um, and, <laughs> and just another thing that encourages me for what the DA has to do. It has to, it has to repeat itself again and again and again. Uh, it takes three goes to go from no, but we need it to no, but we don't need it. Yeah. Oh, um, are you, racism. I, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm just sort of struck by it. Whenever I hear about a panel debate like this from one of you guys uh, who go on TV, there's always just this kind of so someone accuses someone who works for the IRR of being condescending or being rude or it's it's just anyway. It it drains the hope from my body. <laughs> I think you, must, you must you must think in the Russian accent. If someone says yeah, yeah. No, no, I disagree I with you. It's a way of saying I love you. It's a, it's a way to say I feel you very closely. But in my culture, seen... I cannot say out loud in front of others that I feel you closely. So I must use gymnastics. I, I don't know if you've ever seen that, that, that meme. It's like, it's a graph, right? It's three graphs. And the first one is uh, Americans. 
and then it has at the bottom like how how much how they actually feel about something and the, then this graph is sectioned to which word they use to describe what they feel about or how they the it's just yeah. which word they use to describe that emotion right how so intensely. americans yeah. will say cool for like almost everything unless it's really cool in which case they'll say this is awesome Um, whereas it has to be absolutely appalling before they say no. Yeah. And Slavs, it's the opposite. It doesn't matter how good something is. It's always no, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You're learning. You're learning. Exactly right. Speaking, speaking of Americans, uh, we do have to talk about the U S election. So when you hear this podcast, uh, the Americans will be but hours away from voting uh, in the election. I've been mucking, looking at polls endlessly and refreshing websites to see the latest uh, stuff coming in, and whew, it's been it's been something. Um, I can't say I feel particularly confident about uh, anything that's that's going on. I'm <laughs> there's Nick. Don't hedge so your bets. Looking look at... Tell us straight. No, no, no. No, no. I'm, I'm, let me let me unpack this. Let me unpack this. So Biden is unambiguously ahead in, by pretty much every piece of data we have, apart from you know there's a couple of contrary pieces of data like high Republican registration numbers in certain states and uh, big turnout at Trump rallies and that kind of thing. But in most of the data, funding, polling, um, you know the general environment of the country, it kind of seems like. Biden is way ahead. And that's, I think, the safe bet and probably the smart bet is to say that he is ahead. However, uh, in the very important state of, because if you look at the map, right, there's a bunch of states that if Trump does just slightly better than he's projected to do, he wins. Places like Georgia, uh, North Carolina, that kind of thing. If you take all of those as being for him, which is not a stretch. In fact, I, w- I would be a little bit surprised if he didn't win any of those those very close states like Georgia, North Carolina, Arizona. Um, if you if you put all of those in his column, then suddenly it's actually about a fight for Pennsylvania. Yeah, and that seems to be the point which the whole election kind of hinges on. Yeah, and how much is Biden ahead by in Pennsylvania? Well, it seems to have closed a bit, but pretty much it looks like he's anywhere between um, four and six points ahead of Trump in Pennsylvania, which is a little bit difficult to overcome. Last time the polls underestimated Trump about three points in Pennsylvania, but it's not unheard of for polls to be off by that much. I don't think they will be because I think pollsters are looking for Republican voters, Mm. but I think that it's still, it's not so much, you know, if Biden was two points more ahead in, in, in Pennsylvania, if he was at up seven or something, I would say Biden's basically bulletproof. But the fact that he's only five makes me think, mm, There's a chance. There's a chance. Of course, this all assumes that all the polling errors are in Trump's favor. If the polling is slightly underestimating Biden's support by like 2%, then Biden will win the largest blowout in American electoral history since Obama and possibly even better than Obama. So <laughs> there's a lot going on here. It's it's actually kind of crazy how um, it feels on the knife edge between a blowout and a and a, and, and a narrow victory um, for, yeah. for the two candidates. So I feel like... Um, on 270 to win, which is a nice website to visit that Nicholas sent to me, you can look at those swing states and and sort of bet if this one goes this way and that one goes that way, how's how's how does that change the odds for the rest of the unknown? No, that's that's on uh, 538, not 270 wins. Sorry, okay, that's on yeah. 538. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. So when when I did it, I uh, I bet that I think if if Trump is going to win, it's going to be because he gets uh surprising boost from black voters we talk a lot about shy shy voters and i think that there is a lot of exaggeration to it i think a lot of people came out after 2016 they were like well i didn't want to tell anyone i was voting for trump but now i have voted for trump like less likely to be shy a second time but i think for new voters um there is that shyness factor and if you look at the american esteem economy one of the hardest things you can do is to be a black american who's going to vote for trump I mean, right. according to the you leading opposing candidate, you're not, 
you're, you're not black if you vote for Trump, yeah, uh, even yeah. if you're black, which is a hard sentence to, to pass, but I think everyone knows what I'm talking about. Um, so I think there could be shy black voters, and polling does suggest that, that, that Trump could almost double his margin with black. I mean, so, I mean, it, it starts from such a low base, uh, yes. but... Yeah, we're talking about going from 8% why does to 16%. That so I've got a feeling he'll lose Arizona, but uh, because there's almost no black people there. But if you look at North Carolina and Georgia, there are a lot of black people in North Carolina and Georgia. Uh, mm. They actually make up a huge, you know, nationally, uh, uh, black Americans are about 8% of the population, 10% of the population. 13%, I think. Yeah. yeah, 13%, sorry. But in North Carolina and Georgia, much more significant portion of the population. And mm. so I think... Especially in Georgia, there's this, you know, uh, thought that you'll get a surprise Dem win. But if 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 it turns out that there've been shy black Trump voters, then he could take those states, and then it's going to go to Pennsylvania. And so my sort of tentative prediction is that Trump is going to lose, but that he's going to um, do the best amongst black voters. That that he's going to get as close as he could, uh, largely through surprising numbers of black voters and Hispanic voters. Uh, but then in Pennsylvania, he's going to lose uh, right. because yeah, the, of the middle class white women who have stayed away from politics or have been sort of semi-Republican and this time swing very hard to, to right. the Democrats. And that is kind of a weird thing that people don't kind of think of, of this election. But Trump's problem is not with minority voters in a lot of ways. <laughs> it's with white voters. That's yeah. why he's showing softening of his support. Um, and so, 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 can we talk? Okay, so that's our that's our view of like how the election is 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 most likely to play out. Um, but let's just talk about the consequences because I I, I watch I listen to three things um, that I just want to uh, breeze through. One is Coleman Hughes, who we've discussed on the show. He's a young uh, African American writer. He's he's grew up in like very Obamaville America. And then became yeah. very disillusioned with the sort of uh, race baiting of the Democratic Party and of the left in general, and is hugely anti BLM, but like very compassionate, very intelligent, very mature for his age. Anyway, uh -huh. he's one of the most harsh critics of 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 uh, the left wing of, of American media escape yeah. of wokeness that there is. And so he came out with a ten minute video saying why I support Biden, and it's a very surprising place for it to come from because. You know, Trump's major thing is like screw I'm the American media. The left. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that's Common Hughes's major thing. But he's like, I still prefer Biden, and he's got two bets. And I think on one, I think he's probably right actually, but on the other, I think he might be wrong. So the one where he's right is he says um, Biden. The argument against Biden is that he's a Trojan horse for the for the ultra left. And yeah, for the Antifa, and it's actually going to be President Kamala Harris rather than President Biden. Yeah, and Asala uh, Alexandra Ocasio Cortez, and so on. Yes, so he's the, like, the do you think about it. <laughs> Biden is bragging about the fact that he won the nomination by opposing those guys and disagreeing with those guys. Uh, yes. Not only did he disagree with them in the primary, he's actually bragging about it in the final uh, rounds. So I think that's a good point. And but but here's here's this telling remark. He says, you know, take a major issue which came from Steve Buttigieg, who was my favorite candidate, excepting for his race-based nonsense, and and this. He <laughs> wanted to stack the Supreme Court. He wanted to increase the number of yeah. justices in the Supreme Court so that Democrats could appoint a lot of people. And uh, Biden was asked, you know, Biden in the primary said, I'm not going to stack the Supreme Court. Then in the debates, he refused to comment on it. But then afterwards, he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to appoint appoint an independent commission to figure out whether it's a, a non-partisan commission yeah yeah and coleman hughes paraphrased this as this is political talk for f off it's not going to happen yes. and this is exactly how i thought about Sora ramaposa in 2018 not quite exactly but very close in 2017 when ramaposa won at nazarick in his first speech as president of the ANC, he said, we're going to go for expropriation without compensation. And then the next day or two days later, he said, we're going to appoint an independent panel of experts, nonpartisan, to figure out whether it's a good idea or not. And I thought, well, here, 
you know, this makes perfect sense. He really is a smart businessman. He knows that it's a stupid idea, but he wants to delegate the authority of saying it's a stupid idea. He wants to say, guys, I thought it was a good idea, but the panel of experts have brought all this evidence to bear. We realize it's a really bad idea. We should do what the independent experts say. Uh, in other words, political speak for, for F off to EWC. Right. But that's, that's exactly the opposite of what happened because the panel of experts were not independent. I've written about... Uh, Wandile Seslobo, who is an Agbiz member who uh, ended up signing on to expropriation without compensation, even though he has written about how he hates the idea for years before that. So it's like very strange. How did that end up happening? Um, yeah. Only only, only two others actually defected from the panel. The rest of them are like Marxist uh, social justice warriors who thought it was a great idea and, and weren't thinking too hard. So... So, of course, Biden could do the same thing. But here's where I think Coleman Hughes is right. I think America is different to South Africa. I think yes. that its institutions are the stronger. The Democratic and Party it's is yeah. different to uh, uh, the, the ANC. It's not a revolutionary organization, despite the wishes of some of its members. And independent experts, they're not going to be able to get our, – our academia is much more captured than theirs. There's no way right. they're going to get a panel of 15 legal experts – 13 well, of whom are going to openly endorse stacking the yeah, Supreme Court. If it's, Unless if it's they bipartisan, right, and they yeah, have one Republican on there, the Republican will yeah. never agree in a thousand years. They'll 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 write it, if, even if the report says something, they'll write a big dissent and the whole thing will lose cross-political credibility. Also, they have polled uh, this thing a little bit, you know, stacking the Supreme Court. It's like 65% against or something. Against yeah. stacking the Supreme Court. So, yeah. you know, not a fight one wants to get into, I think, early on in your presidency when you still got capital. So, so on Coleman Hughes's bet that Biden is probably much more centrist than his political foes would like to present him and that he's got the capacity, together with America's last standing good institutions, to hold back an onslaught from the ultra left. I think as long as he's breathing and compass mentis, that probably <laughs> is true. And, it, and, and I think his opponents... Uh, have underestimated that. The other bet, and this is where I take issue, the other bet is that he says um, basically the esteem market is so tortured in America by Trump's presence that it would be better for Trump to go. And he uses a very good line. He says Trump derangement syndrome is a real thing. It's a thing that I've been challenging. I've been challenging those tedious ultra-work lefties. Yeah. But do you do you really want a president who deranges people? Surely you want to let, like remove that guy, get someone who doesn't derange people so that we can have a more adult conversation. Right. And to, and, and to give some context to that, um, I think the other two pieces, one was The Economist and one was a Sam Harris podcast with Andrew Sullivan. Andrew Sullivan is a lefty, but like the most hypercritical guy of the left on the left. Um, and Andrew Sullivan said, well, the thing about Trump is that his policies haven't really been that effective. If you look at immigration, if you look at tariff stuff, it hasn't really worked. Now, if you look yeah. at the Economist one, they're like, no, 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 uh, totally amazingly successful at uh, alienating people, alienating Mexico, <laughs> alienating Canada, saying terrible things, canceling deals, and then signing new deals that are better for Americans, having a little mini trade war with China, and then people thought it would last forever, and by the beginning of 2020, they – uh, it was already ratcheting down, and uh, America did achieve the lowest unemployment figures in uh, in generations, and and super good for minorities and stuff. So you know there, there's a contrast there. But Andrew Sullivan was like uh, more keen to talk about the points where he thought he had a firmer uh, grip on criticizing Trump, and the Economist this likewise. So the one wanted to talk uh, about policy, and the other one wanted to talk about a steam market. Uh, both of them focusing their conversation on where they thought Trump was the weakest. And the esteem market claim that the economist made is that uh, Trump has further divided America across the lines of race. And part of what's so weird about that is if you look at the polling, uh, black America has never been more divided in terms of Republican right. and Democrat in my yeah. lifetime. So it's it's not dividing along the lines of race; it's dividing through race. It's like appealing and, and to and who did and who did who did Black Americans vote for in the Democratic primary, right? Which is the party that most most Black Americans vote for. It was the moderate guy. It was yeah. the you know. So like, 
and then but at the same time we also saw kind of black lives matter which had you know some prominent black activists leading it although you know not not <laughs> a lot of people you know a lot of work white lefties yeah so like it's not it's it the the racialization this is going to be i think someone says this is going to be one of the least racial elections in the last like three of all american elections interestingly yeah in in terms of the hard numbers and i think it is interesting and i think people don't want to look at it because what i think what i think whoever wins the lesson that america needs to draw is that race you can't races are esteem teams you can't really tell what race someone is 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 in by looking at the color of their skin. If you think of a race as like a loyalty badge, white people can be on team black. Uh, dudes who look white can be on team Maori, uh, like in New Zealand we mentioned at the top of the show. Uh, yeah. Black people, there are actually black people that are on team white in like a really gross way. Yeah, I've had, I've had conversations that have made me very upset uh, by sort of black people saying, Ugh, black people are just inferior. Then there are black yeah. people that are just like um, n don't want to be defined by their race. It's not a team that makes them feel proud or ashamed. And there are white people that uh, are on team non-race or, or, or on, you know, it's not like you can't see color. It's not like you don't understand what someone means when they say you are black or you are white. It's just like they don't put a lot of value. That's not, it's not like their family or their, or, or their tribe or, or their loyalty base. So there are these different teams. You know, there is team white supremacist, there's team white burden supremacist, and they're both white supremacists, <laughs> but they clash with each other very, very much. Then there's yes. like team black supremacist, and that's got a lot of white people on it. And then there's team non-racialist. And those are, those are four seriously different teams, and you can't tell who's in what team by looking at the color of their skin. You have to look at the content of their character. And, and that's an exciting thing to do. It's, it, I think it's an exciting realization and I think if America leans into that realization, then it will clear up its public square. It'll become less acrimonious. It'll become easier to identify what mistakes people are making when they are making mistakes and what people are getting right when they're getting it right. And I think if they don't realize that, if they sort of stick to what The Economist was doing to say, well, because four years ago, Trump said Mexicans are not sending their best immigrants, they're sending racists. Therefore, don't look at the numbers now. Just know that it's <laughs> going to be more, that less no. Hispanics are going to vote for Donald Trump. Just ignore the numbers. Ignore actual human beings. Um, because of because of a comment that's pretty gross. Uh, then I think then I think whoever wins, it's going to be a nightmare. In other words, if you want the esteem economy to clear up, I was saying this to my American friends over the weekend. Try and get rid of Donald Trump. If you think that's going to help, go for it. But it's not going to be enough. It's definitely it's not definitely, going to be enough. Yeah. I, I agree and, with that 100%. And keeping him I, I there do, is not going to be enough to clear it up either because he's because he's so divisive. You know, he can right. stay there and it can clear up or he can go and, and it can clear up. But the main thing from that point of view is to clear it up. Right. So a lot of people on the right, exactly. This is this is where I do agree with, with Coleman Hughes uh, is that um, – so, so I do take your point completely that uh, – it's definitely not enough to simply get rid of Trump because there's there's a possibility that Biden being kind of soft on these issues, you know, maybe not on board with wokeness, but just kind of mushy about it and not like particularly anti it will allow it to flourish kind of in the in the corners, in the dark corners rather than um, he won't promote it, but he also will allow it to keep festering in the body politics. So there's there's definitely that. But there is something about the way Trump does politics that absolutely makes people go batty it he i think he's destroyed the republican party in a win one sense um so obviously you know he he helped them triumph against hillary and he helped them uh to you know point to all these strong justices for, from a conservative perspective to the supreme court but he because trump cares about loyalty to himself kind of above almost everything else and because he's very particular about cracking down on Republicans who are opposed to him. I mean, his favorite targets are Republicans who don't agree with him. Yeah. Um, that he, he's, he's turned the party into a cult of personality in a lot of ways. Yeah. No, I think that's a criticism. And that is very dangerous for uh, uh, the reason that the Republican Party is kind of the support structure for a lot of the global right, which at the moment is, you know, the force probably most opposed to to wokeness, 
um, in the best position to oppose wokeness. And by hollowing that out intellectually, I mean, there's still plenty of conservative intellectuals bouncing around and there's still plenty also on Trump's side. But they're not in the positions of power. They don't make the decisions. They're not in the esteem, in the center of esteem, the Republican Party. The people who are at the center of esteem are the let's humiliate the libs types. <laughs> people like uh, Congressman Matt Geetz from, from Florida who said that if you're not in the news, you're not governing. Or, or if you're not on TV, you're not uh, <laughs> you're not governing. And you're like, okay, you know, <laughs> like I get your point, but also no. <laughs> um, and I, I do think that if he wins again, firstly, I'm sure lots of people who, who, who dislike Trump will take to the streets and there will probably be violence and rioting. Yeah. Um, uh, on a on a scale that'll probably be a bit more than, especially if he wins, you know, a narrow electoral college vote in like a yeah. highly contested state like Pennsylvania or something, and that won't be good because yeah, blood on the <laughs> uh, streets cops. is serious. People will exactly. Die. Um, and we've already had a lot but of so, that this year. But so, but okay. so, my point to that is. So, so my challenge to Coleman Hughes and and anyone who supports Biden because they want to get rid of Trump because they because they don't want blood on the streets and they don't want people to um, b- become domestic terrorists because they're so deranged, is you must be very careful. I mean, at some point, uh, you, that's a calculation to make and it's a correct one, but it is an appeasement strategy where you're right. appeasing uh, basically terrorists. I mean, you're saying, I agree that these people are deranged. I agree that these people are, are kind of threatening violence or, or, or I worry that there will be violence. And, and so I want to act in a way that's going to uh, placate them by sort of giving them a little bit of what they want, but not all of what they want. I think there are moments, appeasement is, is not always the wrong thing to do. So it might very well be the yeah. right thing to do. But then just know that with appeasement comes huge responsibility to, to then do the follow-up right. work. They, and that's they mustn't, why they mustn't, I, yeah, they mustn't elect him because they're scared of rioting. That's a, yeah. that's a, that's a, you know, Biden, because that, that really is a, is, is a slippery slope kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but Trump taunts the rioters in a sense. He, 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 uh, you know, yeah, he, he encourages, he, he thrives on it. He occasionally kind of flirts with, with violence himself. Yeah. Um, you know, there was that time back in 2016 where he said, uh, punch that guy in our rally who was heckling him and I'll pay well, his legal before, costs. Me that. That was before yeah, it was he before was president. He president. He changed, he changed when he was president, but it, no, but that was a terrible way to campaign. But he does, he does like to kind of tiptoe up to the line of what's kosher, not kosher. And then he, he, he shies away from, from saying something terrible at the end, but he does, he does get off on driving his opponents mad. Um, yeah. So, 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 so my hope, so I think he's going to lose. And my hope is that, uh, the cult of personality thing morphs. My hope is that Trump turns out to be the great gateway drug for non-racialism in American politics. And <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny? <laughs> because 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 a cult of personality is, you know, when it's you said Trump values loyalty to himself above all else. I think yeah. that is a correct appraisal, and that's the the sense in which he's a non-racialist. Like he yes. really doesn't care if you're black or white. Well, uh, uh, allegedly, his favorite little as long as you are loyal to him, that is, right. and everyone knows that about him. Uh, uh, allegedly, uh, and uh, you know, this is one of those things that one just reads, but you're never really sure whether it's true. His favorite political commentators in the whole world are a pair called Diamond and Silk, who are two black sisters. Who, I mean, I I don't rate their uh, their commentary particularly highly. They're kind of. Uh, sort of red meat Very to the base, bang, yeah. bang the drum, uh, make fun of the libs. You know, they they don't, they don't say anything particularly interesting. They're more like entertainers than they are like uh, analyst types. But he loves them because, you know, they're on him. They're on his team and they're supporting him and they prove he's not a racist in his eyes. So... <laughs> Well, everything it's, does. It's, all, all, every, every, every greenback dollar that that he earns and that he spends, I, I think that's really, I think that's really where his heart lies in a lot of ways. But yeah. In, 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 yeah. And I think, and and I do think that uh, cults of personality are just about the most dangerous thing in politics. But I think they can potentially be a very interesting gateway drug to non-racialism because you realize that you're on a team that is just defined by an individual. Yeah. You've already given up on the on the on the old drug of being on a team defined by the color of your skin, right? And right. and if America if America breaks this sort of pattern of of voting along racial lines, 
then I think it will make its democracy much more dynamic. I think it'll be it'll be good for sort of uh, for constraining arguments about history in their proper context, which is as very important, but not as excuses to avoid addressing the real issues of today, and certainly not as ways of of excusing uh, really bad behavior or programming for an erosion of democracy, freedom, property rights, and so on. So I think it's a huge thing. And I think if he loses, that might be, I think it's going to be very hard for people who've loved Trump because a lot of people really do love Trump, including in South Africa. I'm, I think I think some of our listeners are really appalled by him. Some feel uh, uh, sort of yeah, a bit I of this, a bit of that. I suspect, I suspect we have listeners across the the board across the board oh. like they're going to be hoping that he wins and they're going to be hoping that the polls are wrong um and, and good for them but if the polls are right and trump loses it's going to be hard to swallow it's going to be so hard to swallow because he is such a he is such an interesting flavor um to 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 to, to then be removed but but it might be that he becomes a useful gateway drug to to being a radical non-racialist, radical in the sense that you're a bit outspoken about it, that you're willing to uh, get a little bit in people's faces. That thing of getting in people's faces, being a little bit aggressive, it's not actually a bad thing. It's just that Trump doesn't, he often does it in a counterproductive way. There's a productive way of, uh, yeah. you know, of, of challenging people and repeating yourself and then them eventually agreeing, you, agreeing with you, but starting with no, but, and then they agree. Yeah, and that's fine. He sometimes, yeah, he, and he actually can sometimes pull that off. Um, he, you know, when he <laughs> when he focuses and he stops kind of thrashing about, he he really can stick the knife in. I think on uh, in that way, um, which which or, or or he gets his opponents because they hate him so much to take ridiculous positions just for the purpose of opposing him. Yeah, yeah. Um, which then exposes their their loyalty based thing. Yeah, and how and how and how silly some of their arguments are. Um, I will say one thing, right? So you know, maybe he wins, in which case, in a lot of ways, I think the status quo will probably return after a while. The same status quo we've had this year, which is, you know, a bit uh, dysfunctional. I think it'll be more uh, like last year than this year, but yeah. Yeah, possibly, possibly, especially once people are kind of past the COVID thing and you know, life is returning a bit to normal. Um, I'm sure that's been a contributing factor to the chaos this year. By the way, is is just you know, people went kind of batty with, with COVID and every pandemic in world history, there's always been like a company social unrest of some kind. Um, but I will say that if he does lose, there's going to be a whole bunch of, what's the word I'm looking for, of media commentators and sort of esteem entrepreneurs who are out of a business, both pro him and both anti him. There, there's yeah, an entire to, ecosystem yeah. that just lives off of whether how they feel about Donald Trump, and it's the center of their entire business model. And if he's not in the center of public life anymore, it's going to be very awkward for them. They're going to have to rejig their uh, everything quite quickly, I think. And that's good. That that would be a good thing. That would be that I would think be even, a very good thing. Even people who really love Donald Trump and are going to be very sad that he loses should should try and find that good side to it. Um, and and be enthusiastic about uh, the p the potential that it brings. And if he wins, then there also have potential good things about the public square. Then Democrats are going to have to find a way of challenging him. I think it'd be good for him and good for the Democrats because they'd have to find a way of challenging him that's not about Russia hoax, that's not about uh, you know what you said to the <laughs> president of the Ukraine. They'd have to start talking about ideas again. And and that's what I miss in American politics. Like there are yeah. really good reasons to disagree about. Uh, whether you should be spending your way through this crisis and borrowing your way through this crisis, or uh, you know what levels of of um, or, or, or debt burden can be born, how to deal with trade on China. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the the problem is the parties are probably more aligned on a lot of these issues than they ever have been. Um, so yeah. one of Trump's campaign promises was to bring European price controls on American medicine. Like this is something Bernie Sanders would have supported. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it is interesting, and let people let Americans know that. Let them confront that, and then maybe that consensus will break down, or maybe Americans will be like, you know what? Uh, thank God, in a way, that for four years we were fighting about like tweets, uh, yes. you know, because because in the meanwhile, in the background, like actual uh, popular views that are some of them really reasonable 
have have gotten a chance to coalesce and and get around the back door and ooze through both blue and red tribe and maybe we can act on that i think that would be great i would love to hear i would i would love to hear americans debating ideas and and if part of the resolution is is team red and team blue being like wow we both actually agree on that one so let's do it that would be even better imagine if what comes next is like a a a slight easing of gridlock and a little bit of alacritous government why not? I, I call me naive, but I'm hoping. Anyway, Nicholas, shall we yeah. quickly uh, bridge the, to uh, recommendations? I think now because we are we are five minutes before the end. Okay, I quickly want to say something about coronavirus. Okay. Second wave. Very cool. We we're all worrying about the second wave. Uh, are we going to get a second wave of lockdown? As you know, if you've been listening to the show better than from anywhere else, our first lockdown did not work. We probably, there's a chance, there's a very good chance we won the race to herd immunity via the world's harshest lockdown and longest <laughs> lockdown and international lockdown. That has now been picked up by some international media. I saw that on, on Sky last week. Very glad. Uh, we also have famous uh, uh, scientists in South Africa that are starting to, to punt that idea. Um, I have reached out to the NICD, the National Institute for, for Communicable Diseases, to ask them why it is that their daily reports on ICU and ventilator uh, usage, as well as their daily reports on new cases broken out by province and sometimes uh, by other factors, uh, have not been up. Some of them not at all since 8th of October, and some of them came back then for three days at the end of October and then went away again. Uh, and just during this uh, conversation, I got a, a reply to say, uh, thank you for reaching out to the NICD. I acknowledge receipt of your query. It is receiving my attention, and I will respond to you as soon as possible. Um, so <laughs> it's taken them it's taken them a day to say that they'll respond. That's fine. Let's see what they have to say. I'm very curious. Yeah. Um, so with scant data, it's too, it's too hard to say much. But one thing it's not too hard to say is that we should not confuse ourselves with the UK and with Sweden. Uh, a very nice metaphor is that, you know, the virus is like a fire ripping through a field and the grass can burn. It's like people like Nicholas and me who could probably get it and survive and then we become immune and we help the system. Or it can strike older people or people with comorbidities and then they die. That's like Millie's on the cob. Uh, you know, if that catches fire, then you're just losing all your years work. Uh, Sweden kind of let the felt burn out. They protected yeah. some of their mealies. Some of their mealies were lost, but they let the fault burn out. So now their mealies are very protected. Now they can kind of do what they want, and it's sort of fine. So it would be crazy for them to lock down now because they already let the fire rip. The UK and France and Spain, their non-pharmaceutical interventions, whether it was voluntary or whether it was lockdown-related, it did work. It saved half the felt. So the other half can still catch fire, and... It has been catching fire. There have been increasing deaths. There have been increasing ICU occupancies. And it's not totally unreasonable for them to lock down again. Uh, Once they've made that decision, it would be totally unreasonable for Sweden to lock down, but it might be perfectly reasonable for the UK to lock down. You have to do a cost-benefit analysis of of how how much damage that's going to do to the economy, how much uh, that's going to affect lives and livelihoods, and how many lives they think they can save. Uh, And that requires a lot of detail, and I haven't done the work. And honestly, none of the South African uh, critics of their lockdown have have done the work, as far as I can tell, Uh, nor have any of the proponents of the second round of lockdowns. Well, that's been a feature of this entire COVID debate, is a lot of people not really knowing what they're talking about and not doing their homework. But South Africa is completely different. It would be entirely irrational for us to have another lockdown, even if we did have a second wave, because our first lockdown didn't do anything excepting accelerate the flip and spread of the disease and immiserate an already very poor country. Yeah, and yeah we only I had four millies to start with. <laughs> yes, we only had four millies. They burn. <laughs> it's a big problem. <laughs> but so I was having this conversation with someone in South Korea and talking about all the problems we have and two million unemployed people and like just all the broken stuff and, and the crime and the murders and the, this and the that. And she was like, this is so interesting to hear because, you know, the, the, the atmosphere in South Korea is that the government is not doing enough which is amazing because mm. South Korea has almost no cases. Uh, so they've, <laughs> sa- they've saved the whole farm. They've saved they the whole high, farm. They have high expectations. But they're like, and then I said, but like, what do you mean? 
And then she's like, well, if you come into South Korea, the quarantine period, they want to push it up to three weeks. Um, and then also there's been like a lot of complaints in the media about cigarette butts on the streets. Like so, people have been seeing cigarette butts on the side of the streets and it's, it's making people very unhappy and they want the government to clean it up. So I'm just sharing that story so that you know that you don't live in the same country as someone in South Korea. Like you might be living technically at the same time, although not the same time zone, but their biggest issue right now for the week is cigarette butts on the side of the street. And, and, and it's just a, a telling example of how different countries have different problems and they need different solutions. <laughs> so don't confuse South African problems for UK problems. Don't confuse UK problems for Swedish problems. And don't confuse Swedish problems for South Korean problems. Right. We've, we've all got our own problems. And right now, America has the weirdest problems, so that we've chatted about that. Uh, but, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's different, the, different. the world really is diverse. Like, there's a country out there where people have electricity and water all of the time. Just imagine that. <laughs> I, uh, I, I hope that those, uh, I hope that one day South Africa is, is in the South Korea box. Anyway, um, we must begin to call it to a close. Recommendations? Do you have any? Uh, I'm afraid that a lot of my recommendations will actually probably be dated by the time a lot of people listen to this podcast. Um, I, I, I haven't written Florida man stories recently for the Daily Friend, uh, but uh, apparently it's been a stellar week for Florida man. Um, the last two weeks he has been attacked by a leopard. Uh, the, so Florida man stories are these stories where because arrest records are very easy to get a hold of in Florida, Every kind of crazy, wacky, weird uh, accident or arrest that that occurs in that state in the U.S. gets reported by the media there, and as a result, there's an enormous treasure trove of crazy uh, Florida man stories. And the most recent one was Florida man mauled by leopard after having a special close encounter with it. Like he 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 went to a big cat park and he paid them money to let him like stay alone in the cage with the leopard and pet it. <laughs> oh my badly. god, dude. There was also a Florida man who stole a bulldozer to run over Biden lawn signs. <laughs> Just, I mean, it's not like a car or no, no, he stole a bulldozer. <laughs> anyway, oh so, I, I recommend our listeners go check out what Florida man's been up to. Just type Florida man into your, into your search engine and hit the news tab and it will bring them up. <laughs> Um, Gabriel, what my, rec got? my recommendation is What Killed Michael Brown. It's a oh, film yes. by Eli Steele, written by Shelby Steele. Um, it's basically about the Michael Brown case, which was the first famous Black Lives Matter case, where everyone said he had his he had his hands up and he said, hands up, don't shoot. And then the police viciously shot him dead and then even shot him after he was dead. Uh, but then the district, the Department of Justice investigated under Eric Holder, who was an Obama appointee. And they found that that was a bullshit story. Um, but the the movie sort of starts out with just, just debunking the sort of myth of hands up, don't shoot. And then it, it goes into a much more sympathetic place because Eli and Shelby Steele, I mean, they feel very sympathetic. They're like, they feel very sad that Michael Brown was killed. And they come from, you know, descendants from slaves themselves. Uh, grew up in the civil rights era. Uh, um, uh, I, I think uh, it was Eli Steele who then became a member of sort of government, basically a social worker for LBJ when the Democrats were pushing this idea of like giving black people free things to to say sorry for slavery and Jim Crow and as a way to achieve social upliftment. And so he really believed in that. Uh, government was the problem, creating systemic racism. Government's got to be the solution by discriminating the other way. And his life has, has his mind has really changed. And he and he, he he gets into quite a personal story and he ends up speaking sort of to the ghost of his dead father and his dead ancestors in a very moving way. But trying to find what it is that they said to him that he didn't listen to carefully at the time. Like there's there's almost a, a plea for forgiveness coming from a son to his dead father that I think is quite touching. And that is driven by this desire to understand, well, just because Michael Brown uh, didn't have his hands up, he was actually charging at the police officer after having punched him to try and get his gun when he was shot down. Doesn't mean it's not a tragedy that he was killed. 
Like that, that's not where your brain should switch off. That's where your brain should switch on and figure out what did kill Michael Brown. What got Michael Brown to the position where he goes to a, a corner cafe and tries to, you know, sort of buy weed. He tries to buy cigarettes using weed the night before from these sweet people. <laughs> We're like, we don't do that. <laughs> and and then the, a, there was a Florida man story where he tries, someone tried to buy McDonald's with weed, but carry on. And then the next day, he, he robs the store and then walks out. And then when the police try and, and pull him over, he, he like decides to fight with the police. Like he's in a very strange state of mind. It's, and there's something tragic there. And, and yeah. this is just the first time that I've seen someone take an hour and a half and he speaks so smoothly and so his words are so carefully chosen and there's so much compassion to deal with this case. It, it, it caught me on the nose. It really surprised me. And um, I strongly recommend it. I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's the kind of thing that that really that I, that I was talking about with clearing up the esteem economy is the kind of thing that Biden supporters and Trump supporters could both watch and come away with, like, learning something new yeah, and learning something yeah. new about how to act differently to actually make things better. Um, and, yeah, so that's my rec. What okay, killed my uh, Yeah, I, 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 I mean, to, to, to give it, I've been to meaning give it to watch that too. Of, Thanks for yeah, to give me. it a flavor of deliciousness, someone someone then let me know that it was actually deplatformed from Amazon for being too critical of Black Lives Matter. <laughs> uh, so it's got it's got that panache of, but like uh, Eli Steele is like a very very well respected. He's at the Hoover Institute. You know, he's he, this is this mm -hmm. is not a fly by night thing. This is high production value, good stuff. They actually put it back on Amazon because there was too much pressure because he's just too credible and it's just too fact based. Mm -hmm. But it's got that. It's also got that heart that I think is. I don't think we can. I don't think facts alone are going to get us there. We need heart, and that's no, what common sense. You know, it's facts and it's stories and data. You need the data to be practical, but you also need the stories to find, to connect. Right, right. Very good recommendation. Um, I mean to watch that as well. Anyway, um, so I think that about does it for today. You're probably going to hear this on uh, at least Tuesday or not. Um, for those of you in the future. When America is a burning hellscape, uh, we send our regards from the before time. <laughs> Have a lovely the week, everyone. The last podcast to be made while the internet was still alive. Yes. <laughs> uh, have a lovely week, everyone, and uh, we'll see you soon. Keep the flag of liberty flying. Grr, grr, grr.